Okay. Hey, our, um, our study this summer is going to continue through uh, the topic of the divine story. We pitched to you a couple of weeks ago that the Bible comes to us in the form of a story. And uh, that happens to be very convenient for a number of different reasons. Number one, uh, because stories really move us. Uh, stories are one of the things that uh, uh, propel us into uh, belief. They're the things that change our lives. We change our life because of our uh, understanding of stories. Uh, secondly, it also turns out uh, modern psychiatry is discovering that even our thoughts that we think uh, as rational human beings tend to hang together in the form of a narrative, right? We mentioned last week, of course, uh, that because God is telling a story in human history, we are a part of that story. And for that reason, this is why stories end up sort of getting under our skin, as it were. Uh, they impact us. They change us. They get us thinking. They, they transform us in the process. And uh, the opening chapters of the Bible give us, I've tried to pitch to you, the, uh, the sort of thumbnail sketch of that particular uh, story. So what we want to look at tonight uh, is um, uh, to look at uh, Genesis chapter 2 and read a couple verses beginning in verse uh, 15. Uh, anybody feel like uh, reading for us again? Uh, who's our reader? Uh, it used to be uh, James Howard, but he's not here anymore. He was our freshman reader, wasn't he? I hope he's listened to the podcast because just to get James Howard Evans' name out on the podcast means a lot to me. Um, anybody want to read? Come on, Genesis 2. Come on, come on, come on. Somebody volunteer here. Thank you, Whitney. Uh, chapter 2, verses 15, all the way through the end of the uh, chapter there. Go right ahead. Surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, is at, la this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay. All right, so here's the question we want to entertain tonight. What is the plot of this story? Or, we might ask the question in a broader way, what will the plot lines be? We looked, first of all, at the idea of story our first week. We looked at the main character of the story, mankind. Tonight, we're going to look into the question of, where is this story going? Is it going to be a good story? Is it the kind of story that would grab my attention? Well, I don't know. We'll wait and see. Um, the story of Genesis chapter 2 begins in God saying something that you would not expect Him to say. Because in Genesis chapter 1, you've got this constant refrain of the things that God is creating being good. And yet all of a sudden, you get in Genesis chapter 2 to the one thing that is not good. 
And what is that one thing that's not good? He said, non-rhetorically, that man should be alone. It is not good that man should be alone. Now, for most of us, and many of you have heard me say this on numerous occasions because it's a very familiar theme that comes up to us in Scripture, but for most of us, when we begin to think about it's not good for man to be alone, we think about, you know, well, God decided He would create marriage so that man wouldn't be lonely. And to be honest with you, that certainly is one of the main reasons why God gave marriage to deal with that particular contingency. But I think there's a much more foundational theological reason for this. Because you see, in the Bible, one of the things that distinguishes, I would say one of the main things that distinguishes Christianity from the rest of world religions is that God's self-definition is not just a me, but an us. In other words, the Christian God comes throughout Christian history as a tri-unity, a trinity. He is one essence, but three persons. At the same time, all right? There are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, for most of us, this is incredibly uninteresting when we first encounter it. Okay, big deal. What's the difference? Well, look, you have to understand that if the God who is creating and telling this story has relationship in his own self-definition, it means that the plot lines of Scripture are going to follow that relationship. Does that make sense? God looks down and says, I've made this creature. In order for him to adequately be a reflector of my character, like we talked about last week, he needs to be in relationship. Why? Because if, I, if he's going to be in my image, and I am a God who is three persons in one essence, and I have been in eternal fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit since before the foundations of the earth, he's got to be in relationship. Does that make sense? Look, y'all, this is incredibly unique. Only in Christianity do you have relationship at the very center of reality itself. In every other world world religion, the idea of being bonded to another person, being deeply connected to another person, has to get imported later in later aspects of their theology. But in Christianity, it's at the very root. And I simply want to appeal to that unwritten story in your own consciousness right now. Isn't there something inside of you that knows that's true? It ought to be true that if God is really telling this story, that we know that the real richness that comes in my life is that desire to be deeply and meaningfully connected to someone. To be deeply and meaningfully bonded to someone where we feel like they know us inside and out. Where we feel like they're going to appreciate us no matter how we act towards them or they act towards us. And to where we feel like we're really being known in a profound way. Well, the Bible has a description for that kind of relationship. And it uses a little fancy schmancy word that's kind of going to be the theme of our discussion tonight. The word covenant. God says that I am going to relate to my people in terms of a bond a connection, a deep, powerful, meaningful, meaningfully knit relationship that's going to be called a covenant. Now, don't let that word throw you off. I simply want you to hear, when you hear the word covenant, this idea that we were created to be connected in a meaningful way to other persons, most notably the person of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
That's, that's why we were created in that image. And so what we get in Genesis chapter 2 is the unfolding of this covenant. And so I want to do three things for you tonight. We want to define the covenant, right? We want to secondly apply the covenant, and then we want to illustrate it. We got the covenant defined, the covenant applied, and then the covenant illustrated for us. And by the time we're done tonight, I want you to see, uh, I want you to be able to have some workable understanding of what that word covenant really means. All right, first sort of step into this. Genesis 2 is the first explanation of the covenant that you get in the Bible. Now, granted, you didn't see the word covenant uh, in Genesis chapter 2, but that's okay because it's got all the elements of a covenant. In order to have a covenant, you've got to have three things. And I hope this is going to sound vaguely familiar to you, especially if you've ever had a dating relationship while you've been in high school or uh, uh, college. The first thing that you have to have in a covenant is a definition of the relationship. You have to have the all-important DTR. In order for there to be a relationship, in order for there to be a covet, all right? Second thing is, there have to be behaviors that are appropriate to that definition. I'll expand on this in just a minute, but there's a definition, and then there's certain things that are appropriate to that definition. Does that make sense? And then thirdly, you have what we might call uh, stipulations, or what we might refer to as appropriate uh, um, uh, uh, sort of rewards for good behavior and punishments for bad behavior. Does that make sense? Things that we get as long as we live in terms of that covenant and things that will be denied to us if we ever break that covenant. In other words, it's sort of like um, the relationship between a law and um, punishments for breaches of the law. Does that make sense? You're supposed to drive 55 miles an hour down Highway 6 here through Oxford. If you don't, you get a ticket, you get a punishment for that. That would be part of the relationship of us as citizens of Oxford to the law in this town. Does that make sense? It's a covenant. There's a bond that exists there, and we get it here in Genesis chapter 2. And so basically God looks and says, I want you to relate to me on the basis of that very same bond. And we'll get to what the stipulations are that in just a second. But notice one small thing before we move to the second point about covenants. If God relates to us in terms of a relationship that, that, that has a definition, doesn't, that also, doesn't it also stand to reason that all of our relationships will tend, as it were, to kind of fall out into a definition as well? Look, if you begin to think about this, you'll really help, this will help explain why we struggle with our relationships in the way in which we do. You are having covenant issues. If you're having trouble with your friends, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your parents, your teachers, or whatever. Let me see if I can illustrate. From the very earliest of ages, you knew that there was a sense of appropriateness between you and your parents. Did you not? In a sense, you looked and said, you're mommy, I am infant, uh, you provide me food and all comfort, and I beg for it. That's simple. Wah, 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 feed me. Wah, 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 I just put my diaper, whatever. You knew what the relationship was very instinctively. Right? There was a bond that existed between the two of you that you kind of picked up. Now, a little later on in life, you went to this strange place called school. And there was this weird person up there known as the teacher. And all of a sudden, you found there were a whole different set of rules, weren't there? Right? You're the student. They're the teacher. And there were certain, there were certain understandings between the two of you, Right? Uh, this is one of the reasons why it makes the headlines when teachers in high school end up having sexual relationships with their students. And we all go, ugh. Maybe in college you've, you've heard of a, a friend of yours who's dating the teacher. 
And you're like, ugh, that's kind of creepy. Why does that instinctively creep us out? Because we know what's appropriate for the definition teacher-student. Are you following me on this? Look, all I'm saying is, is every time that you step up into any relationship with someone, it has a definition. How about a husband and wife? This is kind of a big one. <laughs> uh, and it actually gets laid out for you fairly explicitly. You know, the minister will typically stand up and say, here's the deal, right? Uh, richer, poor, uh, sickness, health, better or worse, till death you do part, Right? That's the fundamental definition that exists between you and this person. The person, and of course that one tends to come with a little bit of, we have some rough edges to clear off there, but that sometimes happens. Um, now, so here's one question for you. Why, do you understand why now it could often be very challenging to date somebody when you're in college? Small little asterisk here. This is not a talk about dating, but you've got to throw this in here at this point. Look, dating is difficult because we really don't know what's going on between the two of us. Now, we think that we know. This has been my sort of uh, spiel for the last 16 years <laughs> that I've tried to convince college students of. We think we know what's going on between us and the person that we're dating because we used that word. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, so, how are things going with you and so-and-so? It is great. <laughs> we're dating, right? But if I start to actually kind of pick at you a little bit and be like, that's so interesting. Mind if I like to ask you some questions as far as what that means between the two of y'all. Sure, by all means, ask away. The second that I start to press for any answers to that, we grow strangely confused. Because the truth of the matter is we can use the word dating without having any idea what that bond really means. Oh, that is until you actually break the terms of that covenant. <laughs> and you'll find that out quickly enough, right? Uh, either he'll get all pouty, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, you know, distant. He's looking off, you know, he won't make eye contact with you. Or maybe she's sort of sullen in the car, you know, in the, in, the, in the seat next to you in the car ride home. It got all quiet. It got weird, you know. Um, what is that? That's the two of us wrestling with what is and is not appropriate with this definition of our relationship. Does that make sense? And in my opinion, we're terribly afraid to actually come out and say what it is that's really going on between the two of us because we're afraid of what that might mean. And in my opinion, it's because we're, we're immature in dealing with uh, covenants. We've not learned how this thing is written on our, on our spiritual DNA. Look, but here's the good news. <laughs> in God's relationship to His people, He hasn't left you to wonder. Look, in dating, I'll be the first to tell you it's complicated. I wish everybody could have it on their Facebook status relationship, right? Dating in a relationship and it's complicated. Can you have both? Can you be both in a relationship and be complicated? That's a nice little Facebook uh, test there. Some of y'all that are dating somebody may be like, I don't know, I'll go home and try that. That would be a descriptive. Um, be careful before you do that. Don't change your dating status relationship until you've talked to the, your, your significant other. Trust me on that one. I have learned that. But God's not left his people to wonder. What God looks and says is, is I'm going to establish a relationship with you that theologians have referred to as the covenant of God's favor. In other words, what I'm going to say to you is, is that I want you, Adam, to delight in me and me alone as the source of all life. That's what's going on between you and me. And Jesus is going to come up and basically say, I want you to do the same thing. And I want you to live as if I really am your Lord. You remember when Jesus in the New Testament looks up and says, why do you call me Lord, but then don't do what I say? Do you hear what he's doing? He's saying, 
you've, you've established a definition of this relationship, lordship, <laughs> but then you're, dis, you're disobedient to me. That, that, that behavior does not fit in with what you said this relationship is about. Does, does that make sense? Look, it's, it's, it's covenant making and you're doing it all the time. You've been engaged in it this afternoon. When, when you got on the phone with your mom the, today and you were irritated at her because she's checking, checking up on you for the 300 millionth time, what are you saying? You're saying, Mom, I'm a big boy now. I'm a big pants person. I'm in college. I don't need you to check up on me every five minutes. What are you saying? The old definition, Mom, is not working for me. Let me go. Give me some breathing room. That's what we're saying. This is covenant business, and it is formatted on your spiritual DNA so that we're always wrestling with it. Does that make sense? Again, it's summertime, so you can jump in with questions if you want to. Um, Look, one small little thing, and we'll move on to the next one. What this also means is is you really are never going to know yourself until you're in relationship with somebody. Um, We tend to think of knowing myself as being all up in here. I just need to get away from everybody and just kind of get by myself. I know that's okay. That's fine. But more times than not, the Bible's going to say, no, I want you to learn who you are in relationship. Because who you are when other people are around, in my opinion, is the real you. For a lot of us, we have this little person that exists inside our head, and we become someone totally different when people come around. The Bible wants to say the latter is truer to who your real identity is than the former. We can convince ourselves of all kinds of ridiculousness in our own head. Get me in a relationship and all kinds of stuff will come out. I, I, I love to use the illustration about hearing yourself, um, your voice recorded on tape. You ever heard your voice recorded on tape? How pleasant an experience is that for you? Does anyone enjoy hearing their voice recorded on tape? It's almost always painful, isn't it? Because why? Why is it painful? I don't sound like that. That's not what I sound like. But then there's always some yahoo who's right next to you who says what? Now that's exactly how you sound, right? Look, you don't even know what you sound like without other people in your life, right? Um, How much more will you not know your faults? How much more are you going to be unaware of of your strengths without being in a relationship? God made you that way because He lives and breathes in terms of the covenant, all right? And it's the first aspect of this plot line. Whatever's happening in the Bible is going to be about your relationship to God. You follow me? That's the plot line. Okay, second thing. That was too long on that first point. I'll go much shorter from here on out. Um, (laughs) Rest assured. Take comfort. Okay, the second thing is, is God applies the covenant. I find this to be very fascinating. Because God wants for Adam to come to a conscious acceptance of this covenant. In other words, he wants him to apply it to his own heart. And so what he does is he gives him what theologians refer to as a test command. And what it is, is he says, I'm going to put two trees in the garden. All right? Um, And I'm going to put these two trees in the garden because up until that time, Adam did what he did for no other reason than the fact that there was nothing else that his heart suggested him to do. It's a creature and created in the image of God. He told me to eat from this tree, not from that tree, so fine, I'll do it. He just did it because of it. But God looked and said, I'm going to give you a choice now. Adam was a free-willed creature who had absolute free will to make whichever choice that he wanted to. Now, after Adam, it's a little bit of a different story. You might have questions about that when we get to the Q&A at the end. But Adam had free will. I'm not sure about us, but Adam did. All right? And God looked and said, I want you to have this choice so that you can actually come and experience this covenant as a two-way thing. 
I really want you to be a participant in this, Adam, and I want you to understand that you have a place in this. And so here are these two trees. One is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, don't let that word knowledge throw you off. The word knowledge there is not just awareness of, but it's actually a very deep, forgive me, like profound sense of knowing, like... um, In the Old Testament, you'll sometimes find that uh, you'll get these phrases like, and then so-and-so went and knew his wife. You're not talking about have awareness of, you're talking about sex there, there. Just spell it out for you as plainly as I can. In other words, the idea of knowledge... (laughs) What? (laughs) Um, Sorry. Um, um, It's not just having awareness of, it means a deep sense of connection and intimate knowing. So much so that it ends up being used as as an illustration of sex. Exactly. So what God is basically saying is, is I want for Adam, I'm going to put this thing of the knowledge of good and evil because that word knowing has to do with um, whether or not he's going to follow our way of understanding things. God said, I don't want you to go with that tree because that tree, to eat from that tree will basically be you saying, this is my decision to say that I can decide what's right and wrong. And God says, I'm the only one who decides that. You are the creature. I am the creator. And because that's the case, I lay down what is good and is not good for you. And he also gives this other thing called the tree of life. Now, the tree of life was just the opposite. Every time Adam ate of the tree of life, he was able to affirm his connection to God. He was able to to, uh, establish it. Bear with me. The tree of life was to Adam... What sex is to a marriage. In a marriage, a good marriage, when two people are engaged in sexual activity, they are reaffirming their connection to each other. You know, on your wedding day, you make these very big promises, like I said just a minute ago, about rich or poor, sickness, health, death, us do part. And every week of your marriage will be a temptation to break those promises. It just will. The pressure of life comes beating in on you. But the marriage bed is the place where you look at someone and say... No, I'm still all in. I'm still with you. That's what the tree of life was about. And by the way, we still have that in our day. The Lord's Supper, Jesus leaves for His people to be what? A way of reaffirming the covenant. Of saying, God, I'm still here. And of God looking at us and saying, and I'm still here too. My blood is still sufficient to keep this bond between the two of us together to make it something that's, um, uh, that's real. Look, y'all, when all of a sudden we come up to the tree of knowledge and good and evil and Adam and Eve break it, which we're going to talk about next week when we get to whether or not this story is a tragedy or whether it's a comedy. Um, When Adam and Eve break that, God looks and says, you know, now what are we going to do about man? Because he's now become like one of us, knowing that is discerning for himself between good and evil. In other words, Adam and Eve tried to look and say to themselves, we're the ones who will decide. If you want to know what this story is about in the Bible, it becomes a question of allegiance. Who will these rebellious creatures align themselves with? To whom will they pledge allegiance? Will they pledge allegiance to their creator, the one that they were built to know and to love and to exist and flourish with? Or will they continue in their allegiance toward the one who has nothing at the heart but their own destruction? Now that's an interesting story. <laughs> what will these people do, right? Stay tuned as we get into it. All right. Look, uh, once again, I would simply pitch at you that you know this intuitively. Every relation, Relationships don't have to be just defi- defined just once. 
in order to really apply that, that covenant to ourselves, we have to reaffirm those things. Um, in your dating relationships, it's not like you have to look at someone and say, well, I told her we were dating. Well, he knows we're dating. No, it oftentimes takes numerous conversations. This is true for your friendships. Because guess what happens? Your friendships change. You change. And we constantly need to be about the business of reaffirming our bonds that we have with people. When was the last time you looked at someone you cared about, not necessarily a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and told them how much you appreciated them? How long has that been? And gentlemen, guys, is it possible for us to do that without the necessity of putting at the beginning of that statement, well, I ain't gay or nothing? You know what I'm talking about? Well, you know, I ain't gay or nothing, but uh, I really appreciate you. You meant a lot to me. (laughs) We have to precede everything that we say. The Bible is saying, though, that we don't have a friendship, though, unless we learn how to actually establish the fact of saying, you are my friend. I got teary-eyed. This this movie is 15 years old. Why am I even using it as an illustration? Has anyone ever seen the movie um, Dances with Wolves? Okay, okay, so this is still on your, uh, on your pop culture palette here. Um, uh, you know, it's an incredibly long movie. It's not super entertaining, but it's interesting. Um, Kevin Costner goes and joins the, uh, the, is it the Sioux Indians? Is that what the, whatever. He goes and joins the, uh, the Indians. I've got to be really careful. I know exactly <laughs> how culturally insensitive of last. That's right. Um, <laughs> I did not say that. Um, he goes and he joins a friendly band of Native Americans. Um, and there's one particular um, wind in his hair. I remember the name of the character. I don't remember the tribe. Uh, the character's name is Wind in His Hair, who hates Kevin Costner because he's a white man. He's the one who's the source of our problem. But by the very end of the movie, there's this incredibly dramatic scene where uh, um, Kevin Costner's character, who ends up getting named Dances with Wolves, is leaving the camp for the last time. And Wind in His Hair is standing up on the, on the top of the mountain, screaming down the canyon, you know, Dances with Wolves, do you see me? Do you see me? Because I am your friend. I will and always will be, I am and always will be your friend. Do you see me, Dances with Wolves? It's an incredibly dramatic moment. Um, Why? Because there's a part of us that really wishes that someone would pledge themselves to us in that way, isn't there? And and, and to make sure that (laughs) that that they meant what they were promising. Well, that's a perfect lead into my last point because the covenant's not just defined as a bond. It's not just applied as something that has to be reaffirmed. But thirdly, it's illustrated for us in marriage. Marriage is God's illustration, thirdly, to let us know, okay, if you want to know what this relationship that I'm establishing here is like, here is marriage. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 2, you have your first wedding. God is presiding. He's over the, over the two of them. Adam makes his vows, you know, where he looks at his wife and says, you're now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to name you. And I'm going to take you unto myself, right? Because you were taken out of me. You're part of me. In other words, Adam looks at Eve after he's had all these other potentials passed in front of him. You do realize that's the comedy of the story, isn't it? Where God looks and says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And Adam starts to name the animals. Here's a lion, Adam. And Adam's like, oh, lions are great. 
powerful, they roar a lot, big furry mane, but not quite doing it for me there, Lord. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. How about a horsey? You know, how about the horse? Well, horsey, good to ride around on, you know. Uh, why the long face? But it's a good thing. Um, 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 it's a little bit funny, you have to admit. Um, but none of the animals do it for him, right? Until God looks and says, okay, now I've got the perfect idea, and he creates woman. And what Adam's basically saying when he says this flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, the little poem that he recites is, you know, know her. I am her. I now know me in a way that I didn't before I met her. Now that's powerful. And that is what God is saying in the illustration of this marriage. I'm going to let you know what this plot line is about. Look, y'all, race ahead to the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 19. And you're going to find that all of human history culminates in something, a great feast. And you know what kind of feast it is? Can you guess? It's a wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Hey, look, y'all, the Bible begins and ends in a wedding. What that ought to tell you is, is there's something about this story that's being told in the Bible that is a love story. Um, I think it's not unfair to the Scripture to say that what you have in the Bible is man, God wanting to establish a man and to scoop him up and to draw him in to this eternal, inter-Trinitarian dance of love, to coin C.S. Lewis, to use C.S. Lewis's phrase, and to draw him up into it. But he decides that he's going to live on his own terms. And so the husband heart of God sets about from the very beginning of the, book, of, of the Bible to go and track down his errant lover. And what we find is when it culminates in the New Testament is he wins that trek. And his son Jesus, it, his son comes as the great bridegroom. And the church is what? The bride of Christ. Uh, sorry, gentlemen, we are all feminine to him as the church. As the church, the body of Christ, we are feminine to our Lord because we are the ones who will be joined to Him in that very meaningful way. Look, the plot lines of this story will constantly lead you to think about marriage. As a matter of fact, oftentimes in the Bible, you won't be able to tell whether the Bible is talking about the gospel or whether it's talking about marriage. Read through the book of Hosea where God goes to Hosea and tells him that He wants him to marry a prostitute. Yeesh, what? Yes, go marry a prostitute because until you learn to love someone who is actively trying to destroy, to destroy themselves that way, Hosea, you'll never know what it's like for me to deal with my people because they are a pitiful people. <laughs> they are people who are hell-bent on their own self-destruction and I'm trying to save them from that and I'm trying to go back and subdue them and to bring them the kind of rule and the kind of leadership and the kind of lordship that will actually allow them to flourish and not to allow them to, uh, to struggle. Look, y'all, if you want to know what this story is about, go look at the best of love stories that, you, that, that light your heart up, that make you look and sort of... Did we talk about the notebook? Mm-hmm. We did this a couple weeks ago, didn't we? I guess I can't bring it up again. But every single love story that moves you is a memory trace. It's a memory trace that was formatted on your spiritual DNA that you hope that there really is, ladies, a white knight who's going to ride in on a horse and rescue you. Because you know what? That ends up being a true story. 
Gentlemen, there really is someone who would look at you and actually say, I will pledge myself to you till death us do part, no matter what kind of insecurities you have on the inside about your ability to provide. There really is, there really is a general out there. There really is a king out there, gentlemen, who can give you the commission that you were designed to know, which was to serve the king in his court with, bra- with chivalry and bravery and tenderness as well. And all of those plot lines end up centering in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus ends up being the ultimate story, the the ultimate plot line. He finishes all the plots and he establishes all the plots. Because in him we see the ultimate sort of expression of our own redemption and this covenant that God has established. All right?